0: Welcome to the Daily Journal podcast for January 3rd, 2020. I'm Brian Cardile. This week for our first show of the new year, we'll look forward to a case the Supreme Court will be hearing soon that arises from our appellate neighborhood, the Ninth Circuit, and that tests a lot of interesting constitutional questions, like what sort of power Congress can delegate to an executive branch agency and whether Congress can insulate an agency director from a president who wants that director fired. Case may also prompt the Supreme Court to revisit a long standing precedent that's created the foundation for many independent executive agencies you're familiar with, like the Federal Trade Commission or the SEC. The appeal, which you've perhaps heard of, is CELA Law versus the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and it will determine the fate of something of a super agency created in the wake of the 2008 financial crash. Enacted as Title ten of the Dodd-Frank Act, the CFPB mustered a panoply of consumer protection powers that had been spread among various other agencies, and it placed those powers uniquely in the hands of a single director, whom the president, per Title ten's terms, cannot remove except for cause, or in other words, a good reason. The appeals petitioners and a very robust cohort of amici argue that provision conflicts with the Constitution's design that places the president, of course, at the top of the executive branch, obviously above someone like the CFPB director. So, the argument continues, it can't be that the president couldn't dismiss an agency head if he or she wished for any reason. It doesn't have to be a good one. Interestingly, that argument has already convinced one Supreme Court justice, though it did so when Judge Brett Kavanaugh was still on the D.C. Circuit. He agreed then that the CFPB structure was unconstitutional, though a majority of the circuit's en banc court disagreed and preserved the Bureau's structure as uh, originally designed. It did so largely based on an 85-year-old President Humphrey's executor versus the U.S. It's a case we'll speak about with our second guest today, Elon Worman, professor at Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at ASU. That case upheld a four-cause firing provision protecting a commissioner of the then nation Federal Trade Commission, Though as we'll get into, the FTC and other independent agencies insulated from presidential dismissals generally have multiple directors or commissioners, while the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau just has one. Our first guest today will talk about that unique structure, the single insulated director heading a massively powerful agency. The guest is Jolina Karezma, professor at UC Berkeley Law and a fellow at Georgetown University Law Center who spent almost four years as an attorney with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and also has advised private financial industry clients. As we hear, she very much champions the work of the CFPB, but she'll describe how and and why the agency's design, how it was meant to be insulated from controversy and shifting political winds, has to a large extent backfired. The agency is, of course, in the crosshairs of this legal battle and also the one Judge Kavanaugh ruled on. And also, as Professor Kresma will speak about, it's been sort of in limbo since its original director resigned in 2017 and two different people at the time claimed to be his proper successor. In short, political tumult has existed around this agency conceived as an independent, steady regulator meant to engender industry certainty and prevent another great recession. As we'll speak about, Professor Charisma has some ideas about how Congress could amend the agency's design to create the sort of independent body that attracts less political fire, like the FTC or the SEC. We'll also speak about her thoughts on how this case might play out when the Supreme Court hears it in just a few weeks. The challenger, Selah Law, and the government actually agree on one key question in the appeal, whether the for-cause firing provision is improper, as applied to the CFPB's director. But Professor Charisma will discuss how the court might dispose of the case without even reaching that question, and perhaps let Congress make some needed changes. Before hearing from our first guest, though, a quick word from our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Lawyers Mutual Insurance Company, protecting your practice through 2020 and beyond. Lawyers Mutual's resolution is the same as years prior, to protect members' practices with continued benefits. Lawyers Mutual's reputation of stability and consistency has thrived for over 40 years because of their members' loyalty, and they are proud that 93% of members renewed their policies in 2019. Lawyers Mutual offers more than just malpractice insurance to members, including free $100,000 cyber endorsement, a lawyer-to-lawyer hotline, and complimentary continuing legal education. Make visiting lawyersmutual.com one of your 2020 resolutions and find out more about their exclusive member benefits they offer to California lawyers. Okay, Jolena Karesma is a professor at UC Berkeley and a fellow at Georgetown Law. Also, she spent nearly four years within the Young Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. She's also spent time in private practice advising financial clients and has written about the CFPB structure for Loyola's Consumer Law Review. Professor, thanks for being here.
1: Thank you.
0: Before we get into some of the legal and policy considerations that the case will entail, um, it might be helpful to set a bit of context in terms of what this agency has sort of been through over the last few years. So it's it's finally reaching a point where the Supreme Court is taking a look at the structure of the agency and whether it's constitutionally permissible. But this this fight has had some some preambles, some preludes. There's been some previous litigation. Um, it's also been just some interesting fights with in the agency itself, something of a standoff between two individuals that believe themselves to be the, the proper heads of the agency a couple of years ago. Um, more recently than, than that, I believe the, the current director uh, herself has, has questioned whether the role she has is, uh, is constitutional. So I guess just uh, talk to me about the sort of recent few years and uh, the tumult that seems to have attended this, this agency.
1: Sure. No problem, Brian. Just to put everything into context here, this isn't just any federal agency. This this is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. This is the agency that was built right after millions of Americans lost their home in the financial crisis of 2007 to 2008. And so this agency, this very important agency, was Congress's answer. And Congress had specifically designed it to be independent um, and to be the regulator that focuses solely on uh, protecting consumers. And as you alluded, um, this this debacle had been brewing for some time. I just don't think people really became aware of it until two years ago. Uh, so November 2017, you had Director Cordray resigned for his five-year term was up. And on his way out the door, he appointed deputy director Leandra English to become the acting director. And that same weekend, Trump had appointed then OMB director Mick Mulvaney to be the acting director. So both individuals show up Monday morning, both of them send out emails to staff that Monday morning saying that they're they're the director and that um, staff should ignore any other emails to the contrary. So could you imagine if you were one of those employees who comes to the office and gets these dueling emails? And so the matter before the Supreme Court, it, it's gonna be clear to everyone that we're on the cusp of yet another constitutional crisis. Yes.
0: As you say, the sort of intention behind the agency is it being somewhat insulated from the various political winds that that may blow. It certainly seems to to be um, subject to some of those winds in the event you're describing from a couple of years ago. Let's let's dive into, I guess, how the agency is structured. I think folks you know, sort of have a, a general sense of it, but there are a number of different characteristics that make it unique. One being that, that it is an in, in independent agency, as opposed to say, a typical run-of-the-mill executive agency, but what what does that mean? What, what what's the difference between a, a regular executive agency and, and an independent one like the CFPB?
1: That's a great question. There <laughs> there isn't actually a legally established set of characteristics um, that define what makes an agency independent. So. If you look at the Constitution, it makes no mention of, you know, this administrative state. And that's that's why sometimes agencies, both independent and executive branch agencies, are often referred to as the fourth branch. Um, And statutorily, the term independent agency is basically just a list of current government entities that Congress has designated to be an independent agency by statute. So first, there's just no set characteristics. Um, And I think the way you look at independence is to your point, you know, whether it's insulated from, from political influence. So the executive branch agencies, the heads of those agencies serve at the Of the president, whereas an independent agency is more thought of as uh, having some insulation from from the president. So the head of those agencies uh, can only be removed for cause.
0: To elaborate a a bit more on what that means, what is a cause for which the head of an agency like the CFPB, um, what, what, what causes can give rise to a the president being able to, to remove that director?
1: So what Congress set forth in Title 10 of the Dodd-Frank Act was the president could only remove the head of the CFPB um, for three things, uh, basically inefficiency, neglect of duty, or malfeasance in office. And, you know, to be clear, this removal provision, it, it's not groundbreaking. You know, Congress has done this In the past, it's provided uh, removal protection for the head of the Social Security Administration, the Office of the Special Counsel, the Federal Housing Finance Agency, and the Federal Trade Commission. So protecting agency heads is something that Congress um, has long done.
0: One question about that standard. So if challengers to the CFPB have complained that it requires too much of the president to to show that the head of an agency like the CFPB can be terminated based on these reasons and um, that sort of suggests that it's a high standard to meet um and that the president couldn't just fire the head of the CFPB for policy differences do you know i guess how high that standard truly is you mentioned that the head could be fired for inefficiency could the president say he or she has some different policy views from the head of the agency and and so therefore the president thinks the agency head is acting sort of inefficiently. I guess how big of a burden is it for the president not to be able to um, fire unless there's some cause, as determined under the statutory threshold.
1: As a matter of law, it's it's unclear because this has never been litigated. Um, I can't recall an instance in which a president was sued for firing someone for cause. But you know that said, how hard is it really to say? I'm firing, you know, Rich Cordray, uh, because he's inefficient at doing his job, right? And so I, I think of the situation that, that we have now where then director Cordray led an agency that was very focused on investigating and bringing enforcement actions against alleged wrongdoers, right? And then you have now, um, a different director who is more interested in educating consumers so that consumers can help themselves. Now, those are definitely two different policy views. And I, I just, I, I have a hard time understanding why if president Trump were to say to Cordray, Hey, I want you to do more educating consumers so they can help themselves. And Cordray doesn't do anything on, on that front. I just have a hard time seeing why that wouldn't count as inefficiency with respect to um, educating consumers, because to be fair, um, educating consumers is one of the purposes that Congress did outline in Title 10 um, that was part of the agency's you know, purpose and mission.
0: You mentioned that this four-cause firing standard has uh, applied to other agencies that folks are familiar with, like the SEC and the um, FTC, right. the Federal Trade Commission, but there are also some differences between those agencies and the CFPB. The latter, I, I believe, is pretty unique in having just the the one agency head, the one director, as opposed to say a body of of commissioners. Um, is is that true? And and what other ways, um, as you've written about, is the CFPB kind of um, unique among even those unique Agencies that have the forecast firing standard?
1: Sure. The CFPB is definitely structured unconventionally.
0: The way I
1: look at every uh, federal agency out there, you know, Congress was basically experimenting, I think, in how it was going to structure it. And so what Congress did with the CFPB was it wanted to make the agency independent. It gave the agency tremendous powers and decided, okay, we're going to make this an independent agency, but it was going to be led by a single director. And so the problem, I think, that many CFPB detractors have is, most independent agencies are led by multi member bipartisan commissions like the Securities Exchange Commission, you um, point you uh, reference, and the Federal Trade Commission. And so here you have an independent agency that's led by a single director. Um, but the times where we have um, a single director. At the head of an agency, that's usually when we're talking about executive branch um, agencies who serve at the president's pleasure. And as we've already discussed, the CFPB director can only be removed in those instances. And so you have that tension. And then the, on top of all that, most agencies are subject to Congress's power of the purse. Here, you have uh, the CFPB gets its funding from the Federal Reserve and not through the regular appropriations process. So, you know, you have an agency that is unlike any other. It's an agency that wasn't affected by the unprecedented 35-day government shutdowns earlier this year. And so when I describe it that way, it looks like Congress designed the ideal agency structure, right?
0: If they're going for independence and insulation, it, it sounds like that design would would theoretically achieve it.
1: Right. But what we saw after um, Cordray resigned and the ensuing political theater around Leandra um, English and Mick Mulvaney, I think the country witnessed how... Congress actually didn't achieve what it sought out to do. Um, you know, namely, it tried to insulate this agency from politics. And I think it went too far and it ended up um, creating an agency that basically got caught in an, um, political crossfire
0: it does seem like, as you describe it, a, a bit of a paradox. I mean, this agency has, has been the focus of a lot of political travail and and, and, and crossfire and um, tumult and an argument. Uh, you know, you've heard about it in, in cases and in the news for for quite a bit of time. So it would seem that the idea of having an agency that can sort of run itself and, and not get obstructed or get uh, have its agenda uh, influenced it doesn't seem to have altogether been achieved. One other thing about the agency, you, you, you referenced that it, it, in addition to being independent and having a unique structure, it also has a, a pretty broad authority. You've written that the, the agency was sort of designed to pull together a bunch of different oversight and regulatory capacities that had been sort of spread out. Tell um, me just uh, a bit about what the CPB exactly can do, what what the scope of its authority is
1: the CFPB, you know has a tremendous amount of oversight authority and I don't think folks can fully appreciate just how powerful this agency is because of the complex statutory language that is in title 10. Um, and so uh, one of the one of the key things about uh, CFPB is you know Congress took, the powers that in Senator Warren's mind had been diffused among seven federal regulators, and she gave them all to the CFTB. And the powers I'm, I'm alluding to are basically these 18 consumer protection statutes whose authority was spread out amongst the prudential regulators and the FTC. And Congress took all of that power and it dropped it into the lap of a single director. And then Congress actually used that opportunity to strengthen some of those consumer protection statutes um, like the Fair Debt uh, Collection Practices Act and um, the the Fair Lending Statute. Um, so that's that's one thing that makes the agency powerful. On top of that, Congress created new consumer protections within Title X, and it tasked the FPB to enforce those uh, new protections. So if you if you think back um to uh section 5 of the uh Federal Trade Commission Act uh the FTC could go after non-banks for unfair and deceptive conduct but now with title 10 what you have is a situation where the CFTC can go after not just non-banks but they can also go after banks for abusive conduct um as well as unfair or deceptive conduct. And so that really continues to have industry up in arms. And then I think what had really stunned Mick Mulvaney when he was the acting director was that CFPB also has this, has the authority to basically expand its own regulatory jurisdiction. And what I mean by that is so Congress gives CFPB, um, you know, the oversight authority of over a list of different consumer financial products and services. But it also gives the agency the authority to add to that list by rulemaking. Um, and so I was actually part of the team that did add um, to that list. There are um, certain automobile uh, leases that um, that had not originally been listed in Title 10, and so um, through regulation, we added a new type of auto lease into the categories that the CFPB can uh, oversee. Um, so you know, once you understand just how powerful this agency is, it's no surprise why. Congress uh, sought to insulate it from from the political winds. And yet, you know, it's this combination that causes the CFPB detractors to really challenge its constitutionality.
0: It certainly does not seem surprising if you have an agency set up in, in such a way that it's, it's protected from influence and challenge. And um, in addition to that, also has a tremendous, uh, very broad scope of authority it's understandable why it's it's been the subject of the legal challenges that it has, including this one. So let's, let's turn to it. I suppose specifically the the legal question here, the, the petitioner seal of law is is hanging its hat on. It's, it's all about constitutional separation of powers. The argument flows along the lines of, you know, the executive branch in the Constitution is allotted certain powers. The legislative branch is as well. Um, here is a legislative creature, but one that's pretty insulated from being affected by the legislature as we, we've spoken about because it has its steady stream of of, of funding, uh, also insulated from the executive branch. And so it's a fairly idiosyncratic, a fairly unique creature, one that just sort of has this power that isn't specifically outlined in, in the Constitution and um, seems to be sort of immune from the constitutional powers that are allotted to the executive and legislative branches. So um, is is that sort of the idea that it it, it just sort of violates the idea of um, the waste power was allotted in the constitutional design?
1: You hit the nail on the head. you know, basically, what detractors have been saying all along is, you know, you here you have this so-called independent agency. It has more delegated authority um, from Congress than any other, Existing agency, um, but at the same time, you have less presidential and congressional control over it, right? Um, and then to your point, you know, agencies aren't even mentioned in the Constitution. So many folks find this um, problematic. And so, you know, CELA law basically is saying, hey, this agency structure is novel. Um, and, you know, the court can't uphold the constitutionality of this independent agency, given that it exercises so much executive authority and it's headed by a single person who can't be removed at the pleasure of the president. But that, I mean, that's the gist of the argument. And that that was basically what then Judge, Judge Kavanaugh in a different matter had provided in his majority opinion, stating that the CFPB was in fact unconstitutional because of its novel structure and then you know as you know that he gets reversed and judge Tillard, in the majority opinion in the on banc matter basically says hey novelty alone doesn't make something unconstitutional and and so that like the, we're we're revisiting uh, these arguments um under celo law
0: and if you read the, the Ninth Circuit's opinion in, in the CELO law case, they they really kind of rely on that D.C. Circuit on banc opinion and, and say, essentially, we, we agree um, with the D.C. Circuit that, that this agency is uh, constitutionally permissible. So there isn't exactly a circuit split, although you do have the unique circumstance where a, a judge from the D.C. Circuit is now on the Supreme Court who clearly disagrees with what the Ninth Circuit has said. Um Maybe just for a second, we could consider what, what might happen if the Supreme Court agrees with with the petitioner here. There's a couple of different paths. One is the court holding that, okay, the for-cause firing provision, is that's problematic, and we could just strike that. And so the head of the CFPB can be fired by the president, recalled, at any time. Um, or as the petitioner is arguing for the entire sort of Title Ten of the Dodd-Frank Act be essentially annulled and the agency kind of, um, I guess, neutered of all of its power? Again, what are the potential courses forward?
1: Well, let me first start out by saying uh, I really wish the Supreme Court hadn't granted cert. This is really a problem that Congress should have fixed. So that said, um, what I envision now, um, if the Supreme Court does in fact rule on on the merits of the of this case, is just a big mess. You know, if the court strikes down Title X in in its entirety, how, like what what do you do with all with all of the government? You know, all of the actions that the CFPB. Um, has undertaken since July of 2011. And this is an agency that um, has provided more than $13 billion of relief to more than 35 million customers. Like, what are you going to do? Ask those customers to give that money back? And um, it also reached over 120 settlement agreements um, with consumer financial providers. So what happens to all of those um negotiated uh, consent orders. And then finally, you know, this is an agency that um, has finalized over 70 regulations affecting, you know, a whole host of financial products, including mortgages and credit cards. So once you say that uh, Title 10 is unconstitutional, and that, you know, this whole statutory framework that has been governing the consumer financial services industry was unconstitutional. I think you're going to have a lot of consumer financial providers up in arms um, because, if you think about it, what is regulation really? It's it's also um, a barrier to entry, right? And so I think a lot of um, companies do like having regulations and do like having oversight in um in an industry because then one it gets rid of your bad apples um and two um it makes it you know somewhat harder to compete in an industry that is regulated um because of the the high you know the potentially high compliance costs so you have all these uh financial providers who have invested um, millions of dollars into complying with what they thought were constitutional mandates. Just go back to what happened in the last couple of years when um Mick Mulvaney tried to change the bureau's name. It was going to cost industry millions of dollars and and industry was up in arms about what they would have to do, you know, to their systems to just change an agency's name. So can you imagine? what would happen to their system if you then shuttered the CFPB. As a practical matter, you have a big mess on your hands. It's like asking, you know, the Supreme Court to unscramble a scrambled egg. And even if you don't strike Title 10 um, it's in its entirety and you were to do what um, then Judge Kavanaugh did in the PHH matter um, and you were to just strike four cause provision, I think you still have a problem there because you still had an agency that was unconstitutional basically since it, it opened uh, its doors back in, in July of uh, 2011. And, you know, I think there have been folks who have said, oh, you know, you can use the de facto officer um, doctrine to you know, resolve this, and um, that really, you know, that doctrine really speaks to when you might have um, an unconstitutional appointment of an individual, as opposed to an unconstitutional agency. So I'm not convinced that doctrine um, would, would um, fix the turmoil that would happen in an industry with a market cap of over um, $30 billion.
0: We might note just parenthetically that name change Mulvaney proposed was an oddly minor one from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau to the Bureau of Consumer Financial Protection, Mm -hmm. so just sort of a rearranged B. In any event, as folks know, the Supreme Court is, is of course, headed by a, a Chief Justice that's, you know, famously quite cautious and, and has in, in the past been fairly reluctant to disturb the sorts of, you know, markets and apparatus that have sprung up around the statutes that have been on the books. Had two opportunities to, to unwind to strike down the Affordable Care Act and, and uh, demurred in, in both instances. So uh, you've written that, that there's perhaps a, a sort of um, maybe John Roberts' style way out of of rendering the agency unconstitutional, in such a way that could cast the industry in, into tumult. Tell me about that argument. It's based on the idea that the two parties here aren't really disagreeing, or at least not altogether. The the government has said in its papers, the you know the government, the in the form of the CFPB, in defense of itself is is admitting that the for-cause provision is problematic, it's unconstitutional, and so it's saying that, okay, a sort of compromise, all we need to do is trim that provision from the law, make sure the president can recall fire the head of the agency at his or her will, uh, and we've got no problem. The petitioners, of course, are also arguing the for-cause provision is problematic, but you know, argue a bit more, but so on that point, they're, they're agreeing. I guess tell me a bit more about, about that argument as to how the case could kind of get knocked out Um, on prudential grounds.
1: Right. If you take a look at one of the easy briefs that was filed in this matter, um, Professor Morrison, he points out this brilliant way to let the Supreme Court off the hook, but still send a message to Congress of, hey, you've got to fix this, right? Um, And it'll give Congress some time to basically get its act together um, by saying, there isn't a controversy here. You have uh, the director of the CFPD basically agreeing that she serves at the pleasure of the president. And you have the president, the administration, saying that this agency serves at um, the head, serves at at the pleasure of the president. So what exactly is the controversy here? No one is being fired. No one has Um, no one has been attempted to be fired. Um, and so without a real controversy, the Supreme Court shouldn't even be hearing this case. It it, it would have been a totally different posture if, um, if, uh, Trump had, uh, tried to fire Cordray, um, you know, back in, uh, early 2017, um, and refused to even provide an explanation for Cordray firing. You know, there you would have a controversy here. Um, I don't, I agree with Professor Morrison that I, I just don't see a controversy here yet. That's not to say that there isn't a constitutional crisis, given, as I pointed out earlier, um, when you have two people both claiming that they are the head of a federal agency, um, you have disaster written all over it.
0: As you say, even if the Supreme Court were to sort of take that cautious course and leave for now the agency intact, um, you, you say there's still clearly a, a problem here that needs to be remedied. How, how might that come about? What is the, the sort of appropriate design that you, you know, having worked on sort of both sides of this for financial clients and also within the agency itself. How how do you see uh, the ideal design for, for the CFPB going forward?
1: Let me first start out, start out by saying that, you know the, my um, idea for how to resolve this um, is largely influenced by um, what the House bill version of Title Ten looked like. Um, and it had outlined that at a deep certain uh, the agency's leadership structure would go from a single director removable only for cause, um, and it would become a multi-member bipartisan commission, uh, three and a half years after, um, the enactment of, of the statute. And so the way I look at it is this is what Congress needs to do, um, to stop the, you know, to stop the political fighting over over this agency and uh, to stop the harms that have been happening um, in the industry since Director Cordray left is basically um, you do what should have been done back in 2013, basically. And you have Congress pass legislation now stating that the agency's leadership structure is going to trans, uh, transform into a multi-member bipartisan commission whose members can only be removed for cause. And then they have staggered terms. Um, and you make the effective date, um sometime out in the future where no one knows who's going to have control of the white house at that point um, to, so that both uh, political parties um, face enough uncertainty that they're willing to um, to just fix the structure without knowing, uh, you know, who gets the benefit of of um, of getting to appoint uh, the members of the, the new commission.
0: So, as you spoke about the the government sort of middle course here is that the the four cause provision is struck and the CFPB continues to operate, though more under the control of the chief executive. You also describe something of a, a middle way here, um, but in yours, the, the forecast provision stays. The the layer of insulation remains, which changes is the, the number of folks in charge of the agency grows to a body of, of commissioners um, that are bipartisan and, and theoretically reach decisions based on, on some level of, of consensus. Um, I guess... Why, in, in your view, is is the right course not to, as, as government suggests, just remove the four-cause provision and, and, and go ahead with a single director, but instead to keep it and, and grow the, the agency's oversight um, to include a body of commissioners?
1: Um, I don't think um, enough folks understand how important it is for the Bureau to remain independent. It was really important in light of the 2007 and 2008 Financial crisis. I think um, the government was right in trying to create an agency that was independent and and that stood, you know, shoulder to shoulder with all of the other financial regulators. I think when you have an agency that is independent, it sends a message to to the industry that hey, this financial regulator, CFTC, is just as important as um, your Federal Reserve or your SEC and CFTC, so on and so forth. Um, And so the independence um, factor um, was a bedrock principle of um, President Obama's financial reform. And I I think you you need to have that, um, not just so that the industry understands that consumer protection is just as important as um, safety and soundness, but also for the health of this industry. And I I really think that with um, an independent agency, uh, this time headed up by a a commission, um, instead of the single director, so you get away from arguing about the CFPB's legitimacy, and you instead focus on, you know, real substantive issues, um, is that the commission structure is going to to give uh, industry this regulatory predictability that we haven't had ever since uh, Cordray uh, left office in in 2017. You know, we had a situation where, um, where Cordray's enforcement group um, brought actions against payday lenders in 2017 and then in 2018 Mulvaney just quietly dropped those suits um, and it's creating whiplash in the industry where no one knows what's going to happen next and when you have that kind of um, unpredictability uh, you have um Investors not willing to invest the money necessary for improvements in, you know, artificial intelligence, let's say. And so the way I look at this is my recommendation, um, which, like I said, uh, tracks very closely to HR 4173 is, is that you, you retain the independence and you also provide this regulatory predictability that Fosters um, investment and gives you, you know, consumer-friendly innovation.
0: Okay, then, then just one last one. It, it, in terms of looking at the, the current court composition and and how um, you might view this case, it, it sounds like we probably have a decent sense of how at least one justice will, will consider the matter. <clears throat> um, but but otherwise, you know, how do you view the the likely um, approaches the different justices might take or the the way the different um, advocates might try to uh, persuade who you think is potentially maybe in, in the in the middle here or persuadable.
1: So if I'm just counting votes, I think I think Chief Justice Roberts is actually going to be the swing vote to this case. Um, as you um, alluded to earlier, he's quite pragmatic um, and he isn't going to. Let, um, chaos reign in a very important industry, right? So, um, I, I think he's, um, I think, uh, the parties really need to tailor, um, their arguments to him. Um, and, you know, also, uh, perhaps Justice Alito, um, could, could be, um, persuaded. And, you know, the liberal block, you have Justice, Justices Kagan, Ginsburg, Breyer, and Sotomayor, um, I I think they're going to find that the agency is constitutional. Um, These justices um, aren't going to try to replace, um, you know, Congress's uh, judgment for their own. Um, I think uh, Justice uh, Kagan, in one of her majority opinions from last term, you know, expressed um, humility um, and, you know, expressed that Congress, um, that, you know, uh, Congress's judgment um, should stand with respect to uh, not bringing back the the non-delegation doctrine. So I have four votes there saying that the CFPB is constitutional. Um, and as you pointed out, we know how or we know how um, Kavanaugh is likely to vote. Um, and then you have Justice Gorsuch, who is, just can't wait to bring um, the non-delegation doctrine back. So I think. He would easily find um, that uh, Title Ten violates that, and I think uh, Justice Thomas would concur with that. So now you have three justices on the other side um, saying that the CFPB is unconstitutional. So I, like I said, I think it'll come down to Chief Justice Roberts and maybe um, Justice Alito, based on on how um, Justice Alito voted in. in uh gundy from
0: last term right and gundy somewhat surprisingly alito joined the four liberal justices to uphold some delegated legislative power so it seems like this case will certainly be worth following but we'll go and leave it there for now professor jelena Karezma from uc berkeley and georgetown thanks so much for being on the podcast and folks do check out her article at Leola's consumer law review professor thanks again yeah
1: my pleasure thanks brian
0: Before hearing from our next guest, a quick reminder for podcast listeners that tuning into our show isn't just a good way to keep abreast of major legal matters, but also a way to keep your CLE credits up to date. If you'd like one hour of participatory CLE credit for tuning into this show, you can find it at www.dailyjournal.com on the page where this podcast appears. Okay, one part of the CELA law case Professor Kreskman and I did not cover much is the overhanging major precedent, Humphreys' executor versus the U.S. That case essentially provided the basis for both the D.C. Circuit and the Ninth Circuit in this CELA law case to uphold the CFPB structure, but as my next guest will discuss, the petitioners and many supporting amici in the case argue that Humphrey's executor should be revisited and perhaps overturned. Our guest, Professor Elon Warman from Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law, submitted a brief for one of those amicus, and he joins me now. Professor, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So your brief and, and, and several of the amicus briefs and, and the, the petitioner's brief and also the government's brief really acknowledges that there's a, a Supreme Court precedent overhanging this case that's going to demand a bit of the court's attention or at least very well could. And that's the Humphreys executor case dealing mostly with the, the contours of executive authority over um, subordinate officers within the executive branch, like say the head of the CFPB. That's right. Folks have, have probably heard of this case. It certainly comes up a lot in confirmation hearings, um, but maybe don't know some of the details. Could you just walk me through, I guess, the, the background on it and and the court's holding in Humphrey's Executor?
2: Uh, sure. So Humphrey's Executor involved uh, a commissioner of the of the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, the FTC was sort of set up as this independent commission uh, with uh, multiple commissioners. Um, you know, uh, they were typically uh, not more than a a bare majority, could be a member of a particular party and so on. Well, uh, FDR gets elected president, President Roosevelt, and he wants to start implementing his New Deal policies. And there is a uh, recalcitrant FTC commissioner who's hostile to the New Deal policies. And so FDR wants to remove him. He wants to remove him. Uh, The problem is that the statute only allowed removal for cause. So the statute specified that the president uh, or, or Or a commissioner could only be removed uh, for inefficiency, neglect of duty, or malfeasance in office. Well, FDR just said, look, we have different policy views on this matter, and I want you sacked. And he says, I refuse to resign. And so FDR said, you know, you're hereby removed and didn't state any you know, cause, uh, certainly not any cause under the statute. So it is, it's clear that they just had a policy disagreement on how the new deal should, should, should be implemented. So Humphreys, uh, the, the fired, the sacked commissioner, claims, continues to claim that he's this, uh, the legitimate commissioner or a legitimate commissioner entitled to his salary. At some point, he actually dies, and so his estate takes over the claim for the salary, uh, and so that's why it's Humphreys' executor. And so that's the background for the case. Uh, and the question is, was it lawful for FDR to uh, remove Humphreys without uh, stating this cause? Or, or put another way, was it constitutional for Congress even to require to put this restriction on the ability of the president to remove a, a commissioner of the FDC? So, so that's the background.
0: Maybe just one thing there to follow it seems relevant, as you know, the case sort of generally is for for this uh, appeal and seal of lies. I guess how how much cause is is required for there to be enough cause to dismiss an officer like Humphreys in, in that case, um, or the CPB head here. You know, if inefficiency is the ground, enough is is it. Potentially arguable that a president could say, based on policy differences, I think you're running the agency in an inefficient manner. I guess my question is, you know, what is the true burden? What is right. the true restriction of that four because uh, requirement?
2: That is a great question, and no one knows no one knows because FDR didn't state a cause. I mean, he could have just stated that cause. No one has stated a cause before. I mean, I think it's quite rare um, for presidents to try to remove heads of uh, independent agencies. So I don't think anyone has ever stated a cause and had that litigated. So we don't know. But in theory, in theory, it has to be more than just a, a mere policy disagreement, right? A mere policy disagreement isn't malfeasance. It isn't inefficiency. It isn't neglect of duty. Unless, unless your duty is to do exactly what the president says, in which case all these four because restrictions are meaningless, then we're fighting over nothing, right? If, if four because means the president can fire you because you disagree with him, then four because does no work. Every independent agency is just like every other ordinary agency, right? Uh, and so the idea here is when Congress set up these agencies, it certainly intended for them to be more independent of the president. So Congress, by including these four because removal provisions, certainly thought that mere policy disagreements would not be enough. But, you know, if the Supreme Court were to come in and say, you know, we decide uh, that four co- it's sufficient it's cause, if if they disagree, then okay. They've basically reversed Humphrey's executor without having to reverse Humphrey's executor. But again, that'd be weird because then every independent agency would all of a sudden no longer be an independent agent.
0: What would the point of the provision be as you intimate? Then just to not get ahead of ourselves, the the court in Humphrey's Executor it disagreed with FDR's construal of how his powers should be applied and said that that FTC commissioner, um, notwithstanding that, that for cause requirement was was permissible, that was okay under the Constitution, correct?
2: That, that, that's right. So the court basically upheld the structure of the FTC. So it held the removal was unlawful, because again, FDR hadn't stated any cause. Uh, and so it, it's it, this is a sort of a cornerstone case supporting the modern administrative state, if you will. It justifies or or provides constitutional support uh, to independent agencies. So that the Supreme Court upheld the structure. Uh, how did it uphold this structure? Well, the the court said some kind of weird things, which I guess we'll probably get into a bit later. Um, but it said things like the commission, uh, and here I have the opinion in front of me. Uh, the commission occupies no place in the executive department. It exercises no part of the executive power. Instead, the commission was a body created by Congress, and here's another quote, to carry into effect legislative policies embodied in the statute in accordance with the legislative standard therein prescribed. Uh, the, the, the body is supposed to fill in and administer details embodied by a general standard, and in doing so, the court said that the commission acts partly quasi-legislatively and quasi-judicially. Okay, so those are, those are some quotes. So, so what's weird about this? The court basically said, we have an agency here that's not exercising legislative power, right? I mean, if it were exercising legislative power, Congress has to exercise that power under our constitution, right? The constitution vests Congress with the legislative power. Okay, so, so the commission, it's not exercising legislative power. Now, it's also not exercising judicial power, Otherwise, if it were, again, that would have to be done by the courts. Okay, so it's not exercising legislative power. It's not exercising judicial power, but it's not exercising executive power either. Otherwise, the president would have to exercise it. In other words, the court here sort of invents a new category of power, a category of quasi-legislative, quasi-judicial power that doesn't have to be controlled by Congress, doesn't have to be Done by the courts and doesn't have to be controlled by the executive. And this this is a category of power that can be exercised by these new institutions altogether. The, these independent agencies. And so it's it's a bit weird. And and I'm maybe I'm getting a bit ahead of myself here. But as you may know from the brief that I filed on behalf of some other law professors, I think the reasoning of the court in Humphreys here is is, is is highly questionable. But but that was its approach at least uh, uh, in that case.
0: And so in that case, as we you know. Discussed has is, is, is been around for a while and informed the basis, the foundation for much of what has grown up uh, since the New Deal to, to be referred to as the administrative state—a uh, flourishing of administrative agencies and, and agencies that do sort of execute those sorts of quasi-legislative uh, leg- and, and quasi-judicial functions. So it hasn't really, you know, budged since that holding, and and now. Understandably, kind of both sides will, will invoke it, will reference it in this case that the Supreme Court is going to hear. The independent agency in question, the CFPB, its supporters have you know invoked the case to say, well, look, the four because provision, the restriction on the president was deemed by the Supreme Court there to be entirely constitutionally permissible. On the other side, those challenging it will point out also correctly that the FTC is a multi-member commission, unlike the CFPB, which at the moment only has one director. And so you you really can't, it's not all fours, that situation with this one and there are important distinctions, that of course being the main distinction. So I I suppose, you know, is that the the main way in which the sides sort of differ as to how Humphreys executor plays into the case here?
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. Look, if the court does not revisit or overturn Humphreys, Humphreys is a pretty good argument in favor of the cfpb's constitutionality it's not full proof and we say it's not full proof uh, in in the brief uh, that we filed but again H- H- humphrey's executor the, what the court said there was that it was the nature of the power being exercised this quasi-legislative quasi-judicial nature of the power now as i've suggested and hopefully we'll get more into i think that's that's baloney I, I, they're making up this new category of power completely uncontemplated by the constitution but but the supreme court Nine zero, by the way, in Humphrey's executor, which is also something we can get into, decided to classify this power as quasi-legislative and quasi-judicial. That was the basis of its holding. Nothing in the constitutional part of its holding depended on the nature of the FTC being this you know, bipartisan, multi-member board. Having said that, the nature of the commission, right, its nature as this bipartisan entity where there are multiple commissioners um, in staggered terms across various political parties, it was the nature of of the commission that allowed the court to say, look, Congress intended this agency, okay, to act as neutral experts. They were supposed to be impartial right? Impartial and neutral experts. That was the whole idea of these independent agencies, and arguably that's the background against which the court was willing to say that the agency was exercising this quasi-judicial, you know, quasi-legislative type power, because they were exercising an administrative type power. They were impartial, they were neutral, they were expert, and so on. Well, again, the whole idea is that a bipartisan multi-member commission can be maybe expected to be expert and neutral. Can we have that expectation for a single person, a single person of a single political party in charge of an entire, a sweeping portfolio of dozens of consequential statutes? So so that would be the argument to distinguish Humphrey's executor from what's going on in the CFPB. So, you know, on the one side to support the CFPB, it's the nature of the power that mattered, not the nature of the commission. On the other hand, you can argue that the nature of the commission was absolutely essential to uh, the court's uh, general way of thinking about administrative agencies and their impartiality and their neutrality and their expertise, things that we really can't expect of, you know, a single director of a, of a highly consequential agency.
0: You prefaced the arguments uh, against why Humphrey's executor is, is good precedent. We should say the court might not necessarily need to really wrestle too much with whether or not that precedent stays on the books or not to solve this case. There are other ways it could go about it. But if it does, reconsider or just consider at all Humphrey's executor. You've argued it, it should be o- overruled. Uh, you know, In your brief, uh, on behalf of a cohort of separation of power as scholars. What, what is the core argument for why Humphreys' executor uh, is, is bad law?
2: Yeah, so, so just to to clarify, we don't actually tell the court that, that it should be overruled because given the word limits, we didn't have space to address stare decisis and things like that, which we felt we had to. But what we do say is that Humphreys was wrong, and therefore the court should at least consider revisiting it. Why is Humphreys wrong? Well, I've sort of suggested this a little bit because the court there was making up this entirely new category of power, completely uncontemplated by the Constitution. The Constitution, okay, of the United States recognizes legislative power, executive power, and judicial power, and establishes three branches that can exercise those powers. Now, it's very important to understand that none of this is to say that more than one branch can't exercise a given kind of power. Some powers overlap. Some powers can be exercised by more than one branch. So an example that I love uh, referring to constantly in my administrative law class when I I teach my students this is from the get-go. In 1789, George Washington issued regulations basically rulemakings to help enforce a pension statute, okay? Could Congress have done that? Could Congress have exercised that power? Of course. Look, Congress can always legislate in more detail. It could have taken Washington's and and Henry Knox's regulation and baked it right into the statute. But it didn't have to do that. It was the kind of uh, detail of implementation, detail of, of administration, that it's okay for the executive to do it. When the executive makes this regulation, we're okay calling it executive power because it's helping implement the laws. So put another way, executive power sometimes takes legislative or adjudicatory forms, right? They, the, in implementing a statute, an agency can enact a rulemaking. In implementing a statute... The executive has to decide whether the law applies to this set of facts. That's like an adjudication, right? So so executive power takes regulatory and adjudicatory forms. So it can look like legislative power, it looks like judicial power. Maybe put another way, the executive sometimes does things that could be also done by Congress and could also be done by the courts. But so long as it's sufficiently executive in nature, when the executive does it, we call it executive power. And it's okay for the executive to exercise that power, even if Congress could have done it if Congress wanted to, or if Congress could have assigned it to the courts. Okay? So that's sort of of the background of how the the, the Constitution was meant to work. What the court did in Humphreys is altogether different. In Humphreys, the court, again, said there's this category of legislative-like power that doesn't have to be exercised by Congress judicial-like power that doesn't have to be exercised by the courts, but that this power is also not executive power. So the executive also doesn't have to exercise it. It was a new power altogether that could be exercised by an altogether new set of institutions, these independent agencies. So, it, so put another way, I just think this decision is totally incomprehensible in light of the Constitution's actual meaning and structure. That's, that's, that's why Humphreys was wrong. There's no such thing as quasi-legislative, quasi-judicial power that isn't executive power, right? It's either has to be done by Congress, it has to be done by the courts, or it has to be done by the executive. And what's the executive? The president and the president's assistants, uh, if you will. There's no category of quasi-powers that Congress can assign to a new body, a new set of institutions, a new kind of constitutional department of its own making, that it just, just can't do that. Humphreys was wrong in in that regard. It was a 9-0 decision in Humphreys Executor. Why was it a 9-0 decision? Why did the four horsemen, right, those Lochner era judges who were wary of government power and hostile to the New Deal. Why did they join the other justices who were very sympathetic to administrative power and the administrative process? Well, because the four horsemen were hostile to Roosevelt. They were hostile to the liberals. They were hostile to the New Deal. And their politics, their political views here, I think got the better of them, which is why we had this nine-zero short, rather crazy opinion in Humphreys' executor.
0: You, you sort of prefaced, you know, what would result were the court to... Um, let's say, you know, agree with your position that Humphrey's executor is is wrongly decided and then go through the process of determining whether, notwithstanding stare decisis principles, it could be overruled. Um, Say it takes that course. I guess, you know, what consequences come as a result of that? Are we talking about, you know, 70 years of SEC or FTC decisions and and, and decades of SEC rulings and, and all sorts of agency actions that are then sort of cast in, into to doubt? I mean, any independent agency, whatever it's done since its, it's founding, do we have to consider that unconstitutional ultra-virus type action? I guess what sort of the, it, it seems like that is a, a, a big step for the court to take. I know parties are urging it, but it seems like there's, you know, a lot of danger going that way. At least there are, it would certainly precipitate quite a bit of uh, a tumult.
2: Well, there, yeah, so there are a few things we have to think about. One, one is the impact on the CFPB itself, right? If the CFPB is declared to be unconstitutional, structured for whatever reason, that does, I think, cast into doubt the validity of uh, judgments and so on. Um, um, because if, if, if they say Humphreys executor shouldn't extend to this, that it was never intended to extend to this, right? Suppose they don't overturn Humphreys. I think the validity of enforcement actions uh, brought by the CFPB uh, uh, are, are very serious. And maybe previous parties can invalidate enforcement actions. Uh, I'm not entirely sure about that, by the way. I'm not an expert on the the remedial side of this thing. But if they just overturn Humphrey's executor, the implication is pretty big for FTC, SEC and so on in the sense that the president now, any future president will be able to control and shape those commissions by just sacking and removing the commissioners, right? And then trying to appoint, by and with advice and consent of the Senate, their own people. Uh, onto the Commission's uh, and so on though there is still some limits there because in the statutes for example they would still have to nominate someone of the other party right if if more than a majority already had it so so there are some on the restrictions on the president on the appointment end you know so it has some impact the president would be able to fire and so on these officials but I don't think it would I don't think it would cast doubt you know, on like an FTC judgment or enforcement action from 1945, right? I mean, the law can be X at one time, and all the judgments and enforcement actions that have taken place in that time period can be valid, then the law can change, you know, at, at a future time. And, and, and then that's fine. What happened in 1945 is still okay. Those would only be called into question if You know, it turns out that this had been wrong all along and they had been doing something wrong all along, but they hadn't been doing something wrong, according to the Supreme Court in 1935, right? So if the Supreme Court overturns Humphrey, it would be changing the law. Uh, And so I don't think, and that's okay, that doesn't cast doubt on all of these judgments and enforcement actions from the last several decades. But it does have obviously quite an interesting impact in terms of the president's relation to, to all of these agencies moving forward.
0: One of those implications would be, essentially, do we no longer have what is referred to as an independent uh, executive agency?
2: I think that's right. I think that's right. If, again, if, it's a big if, if the court does overturn Humphrey's executor, then I think that means we no longer have independent agencies. I mean, they'll still be on the books, right? Um, They'll still be structured a certain way. Um, They'll still have to have multi-members with, let's say, only a bare majority of one party. So that limits, again, the number of people that the president can appoint. So there's still, you know, something different about them in the fact that they're going to be, they're still going to be multi-member, they're still going to be bipartisan. But as soon as they do something the president doesn't like, the president can try to get someone more favorable by removing them, right? So, so I do think it gets, gets, gets rid of these independent agencies in the sense that they're no longer independent of the president. If the president doesn't like what they do, the president can fire them if the president wants. But, Right, there's still some limits on what the president can do because on the appointment side of things, there are still going to be limits. There's still going to be multi-member bipartisan um, commissions. And now, maybe it's not that hard to find someone of the other party who's going to be sympathetic, you know, to the president's particular party. Um, I don't know. So, so it certainly, it certainly, I think, gets rid of this concept of independent agencies, but we still have these, you know, commission-like structures. And politically, how that plays out, obviously, the president will still have less ability to influence them than the president would, you know, uh, a single person in the EPA or a single person running, you know, a, a Department of Education or, or what have you. So so there will clearly be significant ramifications, but but maybe not as significant as some people seem to think.
0: Sure. Okay. Maybe just w- one last one. If you care sure. to to kind of forecast your guess as to how the court might approach this, it's, it certainly seems like there are a lot of different courses it could take. Some much narrower, um, and some, as we suggested, potentially revisiting this longstanding precedent more broad. Do you have any thoughts on how how we might expect the court to to act?
2: Yeah, I, I suspect they're going to do what they did in Free Enterprise Fund, which was this case that said. Um, you know, we're not touching Humphreys, we're not touching all of these other precedents, but what you can't do is is combine the precedents. I, I, that case involved two layers of four-cause removal, right? The SEC was protected from removal uh, by four-cause removal from the president, and then there was a board under the SEC that was protected uh, by four-cause removal from the SEC, and the court said, okay, you can't have two layers of four-cause removal. That's too much insulation from the president. So they refused to extend Humphreys. I think what they'll do is, is what Judge Cav- then Judge Kavanaugh said in the D.C. Circuit, which is, you know, Humphreys doesn't compel this result. It would be too far of an extension uh, here, uh, too much of a threat um, to you know democratic accountability. There's going to be concentrated executive power in a single person, not controlled by the president. I think they're going to distinguish Humphreys kind of like they did in, in Free Enterprise Fund by by saying. Look, we doubt Humphreys. We doubt that was right. And in a future case, we might consider revisiting it. But this case is not on all fours with that. And we think there's a way to distinguish it. And, and I suspect that's what they're going to do.
0: Okay, well, we'll, we'll find out later this term, but we'll go ahead and leave it there for now. Professor Elon Worman from Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. Thanks so much for being on our podcast. appreciate it.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Okay, that's all for our first show of 2020. Before I sign off, don't forget that this podcast is brought to you by Lawyers Mutual Insurance Company. Lawyers Mutual is exclusively dedicated to insuring and educating California lawyers, protecting and advancing their practices, clients, and their futures. Learn more about the company by visiting www.lawyersmutual.com or calling 818-565-5512 or by emailing lmic. At lawyersmutual.com. Also, one more quick thanks to both of my guests, Juliana Caresma and Elon Werman. Thanks also to my production staff here, principally Heinrich Nilsson. And thank you. Don't forget that CLE credit is available for having listened to this podcast. Just find it at www.dailyjournal.com. I'm Brian Cardell. I forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.